0: To Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman.
1: And I'm Jamie Edwards.
0: With us today is Christopher Peacock, professor of philosophy at Columbia University, and he's here to talk to us about the perception of music. Christopher Peacock, welcome. Thank you. So one of the things we're going to talk about today is what the experience of hearing an emotional state in a musical piece is. What is it to hear sadness in a piece of music? What is it to hear joy expressed in a piece of music? Now, you might think that our hearing emotion in a piece of music is the result of some sort of cultural convention. Like, I understand that such and such minor chord is supposed to denote sadness because that's the way the convention works in the music that I grew up hearing. It's through my understanding of a cultural convention that I hear a minor chord in a piece of music as being sad. So do you think that's the way that this sort of thing works, or is there, are there problems with that idea?
2: Okay, so let's distinguish two questions here. One question is whether the culture has some kind of causal impact on the perceptual states you enjoy when you hear a particular chord or a particular piece of music. The other question is whether on a particular occasion when you hear the piece of music whether what you just said holds, that your understanding of the cultural conventions is what produces the perceptual state. Uh, the first thing to be said about this is the, the fact that cultural conventions are relevant to somebody's relation to a particular auditory event doesn't mean that the state they're in, in the presence of that event, doesn't mean it isn't perceptual. The clearest case of this is language. Uh, it's obviously a cultural convention that the words mean what they do, the words mean one thing here, mean something different somewhere else. But the mature understander of the language still hears the words as having a particular meaning when they're uttered on a particular occasion. That's a perceptual state. It's not a result of personal level conscious inference. You hear the utterance of the word snow as meaning snow in a particular context on a particular occasion. The fact that it does mean snow and the fact you hear it as meaning snow, the first is explained by all sorts of facts concerning the use of the word in this particular linguistic community. The fact that you perceive it as meaning snow on a particular occasion is explained by your induction into this community, your exposure to um, many utterances of the word in this community, and indeed your understanding, it's still a perceptual phenomenon. So what I'm interested in is really not the causal origins of this state, but the nature of the perceptual state itself, what it is for it to have this emotional content.
0: Okay, right. So in other words, there's a difference between saying that whenever I hear some piece of music as said, I'm... I'm doing so because I'm applying some kind of cultural convention and saying that, well, the way I'm wired, so to speak, to hear things now is a result of my cultural upbringing. But those are two different claims. Correct.
1: So your account identifies three distinct sorts of experiences or ways of seeing. The first is simply experiencing something to be a certain way, as when I see an apple on the table as an apple. Mm -hmm. The second sort of experiencing is seeing something as a representation of something else. When all is going well, I do not confuse a still-life painting of an apple with the apple itself. I see the still-life as a representation. Yep. The third variety of experience, the one crucial for your account of the perception of expression in music, you call metaphorical seeing as. Would you describe this sort of experience for us?
2: Yes. I think there's a general cognitive phenomenon that's present in many different kinds of mental states. A phenomenon of representing one thing as something else. So I think you can perceive one thing as something else. I think you can imagine one thing as something else. You can, in language, you can represent one thing as something else. When Romeo says Juliet is the sun, that's a linguistically expressed metaphor. It's also possible to think of Juliet as the sun. It's also possible, let's say, to think of life as a journey. It's also possible to imagine life as a journey. None of these cases, um, Romeo doesn't really think that she's the sun, and also it isn't the case that when he sees her, it looks as if the sun is there, not, not literally. But I think this phenomenon of there being linguistic metaphors, I think that's something that's just a reflection of this much more general mental capacity to represent one thing as something else. I don't think there would be any metaphors in language unless there was this mental state of thinking of one thing as something else, imagining one thing as something else, perceiving one thing as something else. I think it's a mental state in its own right, and I'm extremely skeptical of any attempt to reduce it to anything else, some combination of perception and imagination, or some kind of hypothesis that there's a mapping, I think. These things, I I think, are not faithful to the phenomenology of metaphorically representing one thing as something else. And I think it's a crucial notion that we need in describing music. When you hear some particular piece of music, for example, there's a passage I'll play in a minute from Joscane Desprez, Ave Maria, where... The text describes the universe being full of gladness, filling up with gladness. And the, the music is a progression, as you hear when we play it. You hear it metaphorically as space filling up with something. Gladness. Space, space can't literally fill up with gladness. but it's even a double metaphor there, actually. But you hear it that particular way. It's not an inference. It's not a thought. You don't actually have to formulate the metaphor yourself. You don't have to formulate the mapping, but you just hear it that way. Perhaps I should actually read you the text. The words are in Latin. Um, the words are, Caelestia terrestia, novel replet laetitia. The stanza says, Hail thou whose conception, full of great joy. And then the words, the Latin words are, fills heaven and earth with new gladness. And if you listen to the Joscan setting, which is very beautiful, very successful, it's early music, but very sophisticated. Um, you hear that in the music. And you haven't appreciated the music if you don't. <laughs>
1: mentioned that you wanted to distinguish this experience of metaphorical seeing as that you've described from a combination in the mind of direct perception plus an element of imagination mm-hmm. when i for instance look at four objects on my desk and imagine that they are four people is mm-hmm. an example that you've used how can we be sure that such a distinction can be made and why is it important that we do so
2: yeah, first of all, I think it's phenomenologically very, very vivid. So if you look at one of the paintings I mentioned in the original article on this, the Zubran painting of the pots, it's extremely striking. You, you see these pots metaphorically as people. If I say, take these four objects on the desk, the, uh, the laptop, the phone, the lamp, and the speaker, <laughs> imagine that they're people. Well, perhaps I could do that imagine that they're people. It's just not the same phenomenology at all. You can say Just to
0: uh, in, uh, clarify about what we mean by phenomenology, when we say phenomenologically it's not the same, you know, what we're saying is something like what it's like to experience that is very different. Would that be a, a good gloss on...
2: That's precisely what I mean. Right, okay, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mentioned also in the original paper, these, um, it's something that Caspar David Friedrich relies on all the time. In these, um, these 19th century paintings, you see the... Um, partially destroyed ship caught in the ice as, a, as some kind of person who's got some, trapped in some terrible trouble. You see the distorted lonely tree that isn't growing properly and it isn't in the sunlight as a, as a lonely person who's unlike the other trees that are in the sunlight and nestle close to one another. And it immediately strikes you that way. It's not that it looks as if there's a person in the picture. It's not a picture of a person. It doesn't look as if it's a picture of a person. Nonetheless, you, you represent the tree as a person. You metaphorically represent it as a person. And that's part of how you perceive the picture and how it's meant to be perceived as well. Similarly in music. So if you take, for example, the the last movement of Beethoven's late C-sharp minor quartet, and you, you hear that it's a piece of great energy and determination and resolve, but without any kind of triumphalism. It's kind of, you know, slightly grim, <laughs> grim determination. It's very moving, very impressive. But you hear it metaphorically as the same kind of subjective state as somebody who's experiencing such kind of determination has got that kind of, is in that kind of mental state in relation to the world.
0: Yeah, I guess maybe one reason to draw that distinction would be to insist that the experience of an emotion in music is in a way part of the music itself. It's not some additional thing that we, well, first we hear the music and then, you know, this other thing happens and it could be independent of the music, it could not be whatever. But I take it that maybe that's part of the motivation for this
2: distinction? Yes, it's completely intrinsic to the subjective state, absolutely, yeah. It's not an add-on at all.
0: So crucial to this idea that you've been developing of metaphorically seeing one thing as another thing or metaphorically hearing a piece of music as expressing some kind of emotion or mental state, a crucial component of that idea seems to be the idea that you're exploiting a parallel between something in the music and something about the emotional state. So maybe you could explain that a bit.
2: Yes. What's heard in the music doesn't necessarily need to be an emotional state. Music can represent many things, and represent there doesn't just mean be correlated with. You can hear many things in the music. So in Debussy's piano piece, Voile, wow, for instance, you hear the sails or the veils. It's a little unclear from the French Voile, wow, which can mean either. You hear them fluttering in the wind, you hear the wind getting stronger, you hear it getting weaker. Um, it's amazing that you can hear the fluttering of sails in the music, but it's absolutely there. Or indeed, in amazing case of hearing the, the cathedral gradually being submerged in water, and then La Cathedrale Angluti. Neither of those are emotional cases. In fact, when we talk later on about different genres of music, it's very striking that there isn't actually any emotional affect in the content of the music there at all, but it's got a rich content concerning certain kind of state of affairs. But yes, in general, um, both in those cases where the music is representing some non-mental state of affairs and in the case where there's some emotion that one wants to say is expressed in the music, in both cases I would say the notion of an isomorphism is crucial in explaining what's involved in the music being heard metaphorically as something else or some feature of the music being heard metaphorically as something else I should really say.
0: So maybe we could hear an example of that you just mentioned, Debussy's piece Voile.
2: Yes, and here it is. If anybody told you in advance, you could in the sound, you could hear things fluttering in the wind, and you could hear the wind gradually pick them up and then slowing down again, you say, of course I can't, but you can. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right, so in that case, I guess what you want to say we're doing is drawing an analogy between sudden increases in tempo in that piece and the fluttering of sails when we hear wind rustling in that music, what we're doing is we're exploiting that analogy.
2: Absolutely correct. So the general idea of an isomorphism, which is a, a logician's or mathematician's idea, is, is a mapping from one domain to another, a mapping which preserves certain things under the mapping, um, preserves certain kinds of relations and properties. So absolutely right. Yes, in this case, there are certain kinds of notes that we hear as the, the veils or the sails, and then uh, we hear certain kinds of changes of pitch and speed as the picking up of the wind, or the decline of the wind, slowing down of the wind. We don't consciously reason that way. You don't have to work out the mapping, though it's interesting that you do, you may need to be told the title of the piece. Um, Debussy very naughtily puts the title at the end, which is... But you hear it, there's no conscious reasoning there. And you may have to think about it, as you probably you did and I did, you have to think about what the mapping is exactly, to articulate it in language consciously. But it's exploited in your perceptual state, yes.
1: So a very clear example that you use in your paper of this direct and immediate perceptual quality is the minor chord, yes. how we hear sorrow in the minor mm-hmm. chord. Mm-hmm. And that's very compelling and it seems very intuitive. You account for this in terms of isomorphism, the listener's recognition of an isomorphism between the chord and the emotion. The minor chord stands in a subdued relation to the major as sorrow stands in a subdued relation to joy. However, it seems that there are a variety of moods and states of affairs that could be described as subdued and which therefore satisfy the isomorphic relationship, a pleasant sleepiness, for instance. So why is it that we don't experience the minor chord as expressing this sort of mood instead or a variety of other moods? And more generally, the question is, is the account of isomorphism fine-grained enough to explain why we hear music as expressing the particular properties that it seems to do?
2: Okay, good. There's actually a lot of different questions there. First of all, let me revise what I said in the published paper. I think it's right to say that it doesn't so much express sadness, the minor chord heard by itself, as much more general negative affect. Um, psychologists quite rightly distinguished affect in positive and the negative, and I think it's some kind of general negative affect. Sleepiness by itself is not negative affect. It can be rather, rather pleasant, actually. <laughs> so subdued is the, uh, was the wrong word to use. I would do that now in terms of negative affect. In the formulation you gave in your question, you put a whole lot of material about recognizing the isomorphism within the scope of the thinker's own conscious propositional attitudes. And I I was trying to say we shouldn't do that in the earlier remarks. Why we perceive particular things in the way we do, why we experience certain pieces of music metaphorically as one thing rather than another, is a wholly empirical question, on which I have absolutely zero qualifications to pronounce. What I'm interested in doing is actually characterizing the state itself. It's an empirical matter, what can be heard as what, and sometimes it's extremely surprising what produces the, the most intense musical expression. There's some very, very famous examples of this. If you look at Mozart's B minor adagio for piano, for instance, it's extremely simple, there's not a lot of chromaticism in it. It's very, very moving, extraordinarily impressive piece. Why is a matter for the empirical psychology of representing one thing metaphorically as another in perception. And it deserves investigation. It's a great empirical topic. A great composer has some intuitive mastery of how to do this kind of stuff. But what it is they're exploiting, um, what it is they've got some grasp of, we haven't yet properly articulated that's something for future uh, psychology of aesthetics.
1: So what do we want to say in evaluating a music critic who tells us this is in this piece or this isn't in this piece? Is the success of such a criticism tested against its ability to fit the isomorphic pattern that we've described?
2: Well, isomorphisms are cheaper than a dime a dozen. The question is which are psychologically real. The great critic is, is someone who's capable of articulating an isomorphism or way of experiencing a piece of music that may not have struck one, but the moment it's said it triggers something that allows you to hear the music that way. And sometimes great music critics are extraordinary about that. There's the end of one Schubert song where somebody once remarked um, where somebody's dying in, uh, near a stream and they remark, uh, at this point suddenly in the song, you, you can hear the body slipping into the water, and indeed you can. You think of all the many different ways that uh, Schubert could represent water and the flowing of water. Um, again, it's absolutely extraordinary. Just a few notes on the page and it's all there. One of his songs, On the Lake or On the Sea, it's already a water song, and then he says... and um, there are mountains passing by the music suddenly changes and you, you hear the mountains passing by in the music. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's much less obvious. Sometimes a great critic can point out, for example, a connection between two themes in two movements that have very different emotional characteristics. One is a transformation of the other. It affects your whole conception of the piece, the emotional direction of the whole piece. But I think the great critic, the one who's actually contributing not just to a theoretical understanding but improving the way we actually hear it, always has to latch on to the way the music can be heard, which isomorphisms really are psychologically real. There's nothing logical about which are psychologically real, nothing a priori about this domain at all, completely empirical. But some people are both better at hearing what's in the music and better also at articulating it. Yeah.
0: So you've also argued that some of these ideas, particularly the notion of hearing one thing metaphorically as another, are useful for understanding the way we recognize a piece of music to be of a certain genre, for example, to be romantic rather than classical or impressionist rather than romantic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So how does that work exactly? Yes,
2: yeah, so this is one of the things that struck me. I, one of the reasons I started to write much more about music was that I was persuaded by the then chair of the music department at Columbia to teach this music humanities course in the core curriculum at Columbia. Columbia shares with Chicago the property of having a really serious core curriculum, compulsory courses or very restricted choice. And um, Western music is one of those at Columbia, and the chairman of the music department when I was in some vulnerable mood on a sunny afternoon on leave in a cafe on Broadway, <laughs> he said, you could do this, Chris, you could teach this course, I said, well, maybe, 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 and, um, and so I taught it, and I thought that uh, maybe there would be, you know, occasionally the odd philosophical aspect coming up, I couldn't have been wrong, philosophical aspects came up in every single session. I thought, for example, teaching early medieval church music, there wouldn't be much of a philosophical interest there, but actually that's the time at which notation emerges. Does notation increase your expressive power? Does it reduce it? It's analogous in some ways to the question, does language increase your powers of thought, or does it reduce them, restrict them in some ways? Obviously, in both cases, the yes and no answers are correct, and you have to say something about why the yes answer is correct and why the no answer is correct. One of the things that struck me as this course went on is that I didn't find... Maybe I just haven't come across it yet, but so far I haven't come across in the literature. Really an adequate characterization of various different musical styles, romantic style of music, expressionist style, neoclassical style, impressionist style. These are all things we can recognize immediately on hearing. You only have to play a few bars of music in any of those styles. and you No great achievement to recognize which it is. But what it is you're recognising, that hasn't been it, It's one of these many, many cases where the phenomenology is very live to us, but um, saying exactly what it is takes a little bit of reflection. In the case of romantic music, people have stabs in various directions. They say it's very expressive, but it's obvious that there's lots of expressive music in pre-classical music. In fact, let me play you another clip. So this is early 17th century. This is the English composer Thomas Campion. I'll play you the first half of this, this song, Miserere, My Maker. So some people have tried to say that, well, in, in classical music, there are various kinds of um, emotions involved in the music, but they're merely described or represented, they're not expressed. But it's impossible to say there isn't intense expression of emotion in that song. It, there obviously is, so there's not a good route. One can have some fun going on objecting to the characterizations of romantic music that exists. But what I tried to do in the material for the, the lecture I'm giving in Chicago later today is to give a positive account that draws on three elements. The first element is the idea that certain actions are expressive actions. Um, philosophers the last 20 years have been much better at recognizing that not everything that's an action, even by an a- action by the concept using a rational creature, is an action that's explained by belief and desire. You have to recognize a huge category of expressive action that's very important to us in ordinary inter- interpersonal relations. Um, if I hear some bad news, I slump on my desk. It's an action. I jump for joy after hearing good news. That's an action. I don't have a goal in these actions. I don't do them because I think they're going to promote some end of mine. So there are expressive actions. They're genuinely intentional actions, but the belief design model doesn't fit them. And they express moods and emotions that occur to people on a particular occasion. Second element of the account is the fact that not merely are there actions which are expressive, but we perceive them as expressive. We perceive certain kinds of events that other people are involved in as actions, and we actually perceive them as expressive actions. It's not at all surprising that we should do this. This is what it is to have interpersonal relations with people. So we actually perceive these actions as expressive actions. What I want to suggest about romantic music is this, that when you hear a piece of music in a romantic way, what's going on is that you perceive the performance action, the action of somebody performing the music, you perceive it, A, as expressive action, B, as action that's expressive of a certain emotional state of mind, which is the emotional state of mind at which you hear the music metaphorically as expressing, and C, you hear some features of the music as ones which break what are in fact some of the classical conventions because of the the intensity or the depth. Or the degree of the emotional mental state that's being metaphorically expressed. And I want to suggest that that characterization can capture a lot of what's distinctive of romantic music as opposed to the classical paradigm. It collects together an interesting way, not just a a certain kind of phenomenology of music, but if music has got those characteristics, it connects also with the more conceptual ideals of the romantic movement. It's a kind of authenticity, expression, it's not so rule-bound, and so forth. There's lots of ways you can connect that characterization of hearing music in a romantic way uh, with the more specific ideals and values of uh, romantic movement and romantic thought. Some writers, even some writers that I respect very much, especially Leonard Meyer, in his book, Style and Music, Meyer actually was, I didn't realize this until I looked him up in Wikipedia, Meyer um, Meyer is actually an undergraduate in philosophy, so I'm always very pleased when reading Meyer. He seems to be always raising exactly the right questions, even if I disagree with him. And I admire the book a lot, but there's one very important respect in which I disagree with it, and he emphasizes that there are all kinds of departures in romantic music from classical paradigms, and he emphasizes all kinds of cases in which romantic composers are breaking classical conventions. But according to the account of the romantic I give, not everywhere breaking classical convention leads you to romantic music. And that should have been obvious already because impressionist music is breaking classical conventions, but it's not romantic music. Expressionist music is not romantic music. Neoclassical music is not classical, it's not romantic music, it's not classical either. So it's not just a question of just defining a complement of classical music. Um, not classical isn't the same as romantic. You've got to say what's distinctive of each of those kinds of styles or genres the neoclassical, the expressionist, the romantic. You need to give a positive characterization on. And what I'd like to do is to try to use the kinds of apparatus that I just mentioned, um, use the same kinds of ideas in characterizing these other genres as well. One of the most striking things about Impressionist music, for example, is that Impressionist music um, is not music in which the performance action is heard as expressive action. There's rich, detailed content, as we heard in Voile, or you could do the La Cathédrale Angluti, or lots of other Impressionist music. There's rich metaphorical content in the music, but no no emotion is expressed at all. There's there's no implication that the cathedral being swallowed up by music is good, bad, or anything. It's just happening. (laughs) Same with the, the sails and the wind. Expressionist music is music in which there's intentional exaggeration, intentional breaking of the classical constraints, and you're meant to hear it that way, too. If you take Schoenberg's Pierre Lunaire, that's a very extreme case, very dramatic but that's how you hear it. In the case of neoclassical music, of course, many of the classical conventions, they're not all, are adhered to, but you're meant to hear it as adhering to the classical conventions, even though you're meant to appreciate very vividly that the composer perfectly well could if he wanted to them at any stage. And sometimes that can be really fun. Some parts of Stravinsky's neoclassical writing are extremely funny, because at certain points he's adhering to classical conventions very, very accurately, though perhaps in certain parts the harmony isn't. And then he puts in something that's absolutely classical, but it sounds... Slightly weird against the rest of the background. Here's this is a very entertaining passage from um, The Rake's Progress. He obviously enjoyed himself writing this. He was rather criticized by people at the time, saying, Great <laughs> why are you messing around with this kind of thing? Really, you know, everybody deserves a break. You'd have to know your Mozart inside out to write that kind of takeoff. It's very enjoyable, but it's not straight classical music. It's not romantic music. It's not expressionist music either. That's kind of second order. You have to have a second order appreciation of what's going on in relation to the classical conventions.
0: Christopher Peacock's article, The Perception of Music, The Sources of Significance, is in the July 2009 issue of the British Journal of Aesthetics. Christopher Peacock, thank you very much for joining us.
2: been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.